This is KVMR FM Nevada City KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, May 3rd, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. I'm Claudio Mendonça. Joyce Miller returns on Thursday. The U.S. Supreme Court could be poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. Tonight, the California report looks at how that decision could affect the Golden State and how Democrats in office plan to respond. After local news and regional weather, KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker, talks with Paul Emery about drought and the benefits of low-intensity fires in our forests. Mark Cunaberti is here with his thoughts about falling markets. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. A draft majority opinion obtained by Politico appears to show that the U.S. Supreme Court could be poised to overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade abortion rights decision. If the draft opinion from Justice Samuel Alito is adopted, that would leave the decision about whether to allow abortions up to states, and more than half are likely to outlaw abortions in some form. Upon hearing the news, Democrats here in California reacted swiftly. Governor Gavin Newsom called it an appalling attack on the rights of women. Newsom, along with Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins and Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, released a joint statement saying they will ask voters in November to place permanent protections for abortions in the California Constitution. We wanted to look at how overturning Roe v. Wade could impact California. So the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi spoke with Shannon Olivieri Hovis, director of NARAL Pro-Choice California. We first asked her about her reaction to the Politico story. Honestly, I was shocked. I mean, the leak of a draft majority opinion in the Jackson women's health case is the most alarming and ominous sign yet of what's to come for the future of abortion rights and access to the United States. And while, you know, abortion is still legal, and I think it's really important that we emphasize that abortion is still legal in this country, and this is a draft opinion, the Supreme Court clearly appears poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. California is obviously one of the most friendly pro-choice states in the U.S. If this does happen months down the line here with the Supreme Court, what will this mean for abortion rights here in California? What this means for California truly is that California's role in the fight for reproductive freedom has never been more important. We are a reproductive freedom state. The governor has affirmed that, the legislature has affirmed that, and we must continue to earn that designation. And that means ensuring that we are in fact able to provide care for all who may need to access it in our state. Nairal Patrice California is a founding member of the California Future of Abortion Council. And we are preparing California for precisely this moment. It is dire. It is devastating. But we have to be ready. And the reality is that if if the right to legal abortion falls in 28 states, more than half of the United States, millions and millions of women and pregnant people are going to find themselves in need of care. And they are going to be searching and seeking out states like ours that can provide these safe havens for them to access that care. I know other states have already passed legislation making it more difficult to get abortions. Has California already seen an uptick in people from out of state that are looking to get abortions? Absolutely. So you don't have to wait to see what happens when the court decides this case, right? We've already seen 
that by the Supreme Court letting Texas's SB 8, the enforced ban on abortion, continue to stand, pregnant people in Texas are being forced to travel all over the country if they're able, right? And that includes California. California has seen a significant increase in out-of-state patients. And of course, those who can't afford to travel can be forced to carry a pregnancy to term against their will. We anticipate that we will see an astronomical increase in out-of-state patients accessing care in the state of California. And just one example of this, if Roe falls, an additional 1.4 million women of reproductive age will find their nearest abortion clinic in the state of California. I know the state has been preparing for this kind of influx of new patients. Is the state prepared? Do we need more facilities, more clinics? How do you think the state is prepared right now as we stand? We've been able to provide care for Californians, and now we have to be prepared to provide care for anyone throughout the country who may need to access care within our state. So that means absolutely ramping up our ability to provide practical, direct support to patients seeking abortion care. It means addressing cost barriers. It means ensuring that we can address California's provider shortage. It means ensuring that legal protections are there for abortion patients, providers, and supporting organizations and individuals, anybody who would help somebody access abortion care, we need to to ensure that they are protected against these hostile bans in other states and any form of litigation that could follow them. So this is really a full comprehensive effort that we're engaged in in California. And that was the work of the California Future Abortion Council to really look at our access and our existing barriers. How are we going to be in a position to face a a post-Roe world and provide care in the way that it needs to be provided for folks around this country? That was Shannon Olivieri-Hovis, director of NARAL Pro-Choice California, speaking with the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi. A Central Valley lawmaker wants the state to conduct an independent audit into how the Cal State University system handles sexual harassment allegations. Unfortunately, the, the CSU University system has done some embarrassing things, hurtful things, uh, and the university itself seems to be very protective of the higher echelons. That's Republican Assemblymember Jim Patterson of Fresno. He and a bipartisan coalition of lawmakers have signed an official request for review of how the CSU system's Title IX offices process complaints. It comes after reports of mishandled sexual misconduct allegations at three Cal State campuses. Most notably, Fresno State administrators are accused of botching sexual harassment claims against former Vice President of Student Affairs Frank Lamas. The university's then-president Joseph Castro allegedly signed off on a six-figure settlement with Lamas, despite being aware of the administrator's alleged sexual misconduct. Earlier this year, Castro resigned as CSU chancellor. The audit would be separate from the one the CSU is conducting into Fresno State, and it would include a probe of the chancellor's office. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, 
working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, May 3rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening. In 2021, the federal government passed legislation that allocated $65 billion for broadband expansion. In July 2021, the California legislature passed SB 156, legislation that makes a historic $6 billion multi-year investment to significantly expand Internet access throughout the state. Up to $75 million of that funding has been set aside for Internet service providers serving Nevada County. Providers can apply for these funds through a competitive grant process administered by the California Public Utilities Commission. In March, residents and businesses were invited to participate in a new survey to assess high-speed Internet availability and reliability across the county. The data gathered from that survey will help expand broadband in Nevada County by identifying locations where Internet service is inadequate, help the county prioritize new broadband projects, apply for funding, and advocate to elected officials and state regulators. Survey results and more information on the county's broadband expansion efforts can be found at mynevadacounty.com broadband. Caltrans is alerting motorists traveling eastbound on Interstate 80 to expect travel delays and a lane reduction between Truckee and the Nevada State Line tomorrow, May 4th. In a statement released this afternoon, Caltrans stated that crews will be performing various activities during the lane reduction and reminds motorists to stay alert and to slow down in work zones for the safety of travelers and the crews working in the area. Turning now to regional weather, here in Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight expect mostly clear skies with a low around 52. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 78. And Wednesday night will be mostly clear with a low around 54. In Truckee and the Lake Tahoe region, tonight mostly clear with a low around 33. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 69. Wednesday evening will bring increasing clouds with a low around 40. In Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight will be mostly clear with a low around 53. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 90. Wednesday night will become increasingly cloudy with a low around 55. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. The ongoing drought and the potential fire danger it can bring is on everyone's mind. In this week's Water News, Steve Baker and Paul Emery discuss the effect the dry spell is having on our forests. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, Steve, our weather has been really nice, beautiful lately. Um, oh, yeah. And there's, I still see moisture from the recent rains in the soils around my home. And I'm curious, what does drought look like in California this year compared to last year? 
Well, it really, that depends on where you are and what type of drought we're talking about. Okay, there's different types of drought. I mean, you can talk about the drought that's a meteorological one, or maybe there's another one called it's a hydrological one. There's an agricultural drought, a socioeconomic drought, even an ecological one. So, so I'll just mention two different kinds. Okay, uh, meteorological drought. In a real general sense, this year we're slightly better off than last year. Uh, the extreme droughts uh, is being experienced right now in our states only in that central area, the Central Valley. And as you go north of the Central Valley up to Shasta and then onwards to where the Oregon border is, that, that whole section is under extreme drought. Now, everywhere else is under uh, just severe drought. <laughs> it all sounds pretty bad, right? But uh, if you look at the four categories they have for drought, it's moderate, severe, extreme, and exceptional. Well, we here in the foothills are in a severe drought, and the coastal valley, Central Valley, and Shasta, and up towards Oregon, they're in an extreme drought. Now, a hydrologic drought, if we look at this uh, with respect to that, the, the hydrologic components, let's look at the reservoirs, all right? Shasta is worse this year. It's 39% filled right now. Last year at this time, it was 51%. So there's a big difference there. But then when you look at Lake Oroville, it's it's actually fairly it's 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 a little better than than last year. It's fifty three percent filled as compared to forty two. All right, so it's it's a little bit better. And in Folsom, holy macro, it's a lot better. And I think it's because of the recent rains. It's seventy six percent filled. And last year at this time it was only thirty six. Yeah, so it really varies from uh, I guess different watersheds. Yeah, from place to place, it can yeah. change. We uh, water is delivered to our state. In different ways at different times. Well, how about the forests? How uh, are they? How is our forest uh, um, handling the multi-year drought? Have yeah, you heard much? Yeah, I have heard some. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of lidar-based studies. Lidar, it's uh, it, it's really interesting. Lidar stands for a light detection and, and ranging. It's it's a remote sensing method. In other words, we get into airplanes, we get into helicopters with special equipment. And we take measurements and then put all that into the computer and it crunches out a, a picture of what things look like below it. Uh, this, uh, the, the, the technology that is used consists of a laser that pulses and it, um, they also, there's, there's different kind of light they, they use. It's near infrared, which we use when we want to take, you know, warm up our bodies in the wintertime. And uh, there's green light also used for when you're looking at water. There's a scanner, and then they use a specialized GPS receiver. Putting it all together, you get some really precise views, three-dimensional views of what's going on at the, on the surface of the earth, and that includes trees. That's why I'm talking about it. In 2019, the U.S. Geological Survey and Yosemite Conservancy, they completed a really comprehensive aerial survey of the entire Yosemite region, and they use LIDAR. And what they were looking at is the detail of the vegetation, of the canopy structure, uh, with hopes of understanding the, the fuel ladder, you know, what's, what's happening with respect to that fuel ladder. And the categories, they always have categories for these types of studies. Uh, we're talking about the unburnt areas, the, the low severity areas, medium severity, and high severity. Well, what they found is the low severity fires. Okay, those are fires that burn the grasses on the ground and burn the underbrush and burn the dead trees, that sort of thing, uh, the unhealthy trees. That builds res resiliency. That's a good thing. That, that's, if we want to have fires, that's the type of fire to have. But if they get more intense, it actually 
creates a less resilient forest. So um, it, it's funny because this recognition through the sciences is is the same understandings that we have uh, been told by our native populations for a very, very long time. They've, they've known this all along, the, the controlled burn idea, the, the low-intensity burns. So, but to, to answer your question, our forests are, being, are de most definitely being challenged right now, which means that we are as well. So what is our state's response to using stormwater as a benefit instead of a problem um, in our communities? Well, funding is a big issue when it comes to stormwater projects because it's the infrastructure is expensive, and unfortunately, it's it's uh, it's really the cities and the county governments that many times have the burden you have the burden of, of this cost, and because of that, and the money is not plentiful every, everywhere. Uh, sometimes you have slow progress when it, when you're referring to these stormwater projects. The green infrastructures, they're really getting popular these days. And I, I think they're getting popular because it's really a, it's a holistic approach. They're looking at multiple benefits on these stormwater projects. It's, it's, a, it's a way of beautification. You know, it makes our, our landscape that we live uh, so much more beautiful. It it's, uh, has multimodal transit components to it that, that allow us to travel through our communities in a better way, in a very attractive place. We have water conservation. We have groundwater recharge. All, all of this comes together under stormwater these days. So the funding is being found. And there are projects that are kicking in. So uh, it's slow to come, but it is coming. And I'm sure it will be uh, moving forward at a much faster rate as we go along because stormwater discharge is not getting rid of something. It's actually a gain for society. We can treat that water and, and then reuse it in our homes. Thank you, Steve. You bet. Thanks for everything. And look forward to talking with you next time. All right. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with our water guy on KVMR. You can email him with your questions at water at operationunite.co. In tonight's Money Matters commentary, Mark Cunaberti shares his thoughts about the different strategies traders use to cope with a volatile stock market. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name's Mark Cunaberti. With the markets in free fall, investors are scrambling as to what to do. The buy and hold belief works great when markets are normal, but during times of severe pullbacks, the pain of seeing one's hard-earned savings evaporate daily, the conviction to stay the course is difficult to say the least. Indeed, over the long term, the chart of the Dow is up, and the current pullback on the long-term chart is just one of many small familiar dips. That said, times like these do make some investors pull the ripcord and jump out of the market. Historically, that has not worked well, as in the past, the markets have always come back and jumped higher than it was previous to the crash. Just take a look at a Dow chart to validate that one. Those that do pull out of the market, in my experience, just sit on the sidelines and don't get back in until there is many months, even years of a prolonged recovery, and then they get back in way too late to the party and missing out on huge recovery gains. Once again, becoming the unknowing victim 
of FOMO, the fear of missing out, and sometimes get back in right when the next correction is upon us. I once believed the buy and hold strategy was the ticket, until 1987, when as a young trader I saw 400,000 fall to 220,000 in one day when the Dow crashed 22.6%. It recovered, but the painful memory is still with me to this day. The stress on me was unimaginable, and I vowed to never make that mistake again. I have rarely gone to all cash, with the exception of 2008 and March 2020, when the COVID crash hit. Both of these events were complete obliterations of capital as markets cratered mercilessly. There were other times when I wished I'd been in all cash. Hey, it happens. But I usually exercise a middle ground strategy, whereas the stock market falls, I sell stocks on the way down a little at a time. There are many indicators I look at that help me decide when to sell, but the obvious one is the market itself. If markets persist in cratering down, my cash percentage gets larger and larger. This accomplishes three things. One, it gets me out slowly, help protecting my capital from a complete obliteration. Hey, it can happen. Two, it builds dry powder for a rebound, which up to now has always occurred. Three, eases the pain of the fall, as being proactive gives me a feeling I am doing something and not just sitting there losing money daily and hoping it stops. The combination of these three actions and mental thoughts not only makes me not so anxious, but it is smart money management in my opinion. Validating this opinion is the fact that almost all professional traders practice some sort of loss-limiting practices. They know being wiped out is always a possibility. If the professionals do it, it's probably a good idea, right? For those listening to the buy and hold crowd, I would ask, when you're told that, does it ease the pain even a little bit? Do you think seeing gains go away and then your principal threaten your mental state and physical health? If you don't sell anything, where will the money come from to buy stocks when the bloodletting stops if you're all in and you stay all in? Doesn't take a rocket scientist nor much common sense to arrive at the answers to these questions, and you'll probably find you come up with the same answers I do. And those answers probably don't jive with just sitting there doing nothing and hoping things get better. That's it for today's Money Matters. Today's newscast is not meant as investment advice, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any securities, and it does not represent the opinion of this news media, any bank investment firm or RIA, nor its staff members or underwriters. I hold a Bachelor of Arts in Economics with honors in 1979, and California Insurance License OL34249. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Cuniberti. That wraps our newscast for this Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and from business supporters like Weiss Landscaping. With over 75 years of generational experience in landscape architecture design and installation, Weiss Landscaping crews are experienced and provide accountability on craftsmanship, installations, and irrigation projects. Go Weisslandscaping.com. And Ben Franklin Crafts. Locally owned and offering products for arts and crafts, home decor, school projects, knitting, and more. Ben Franklin Crafts is on Sutton Way, Grass Valley. Online at benfranklin-crafts.com.
www.edutechnicsnetwork.com. Don't touch that dial. Coming up on Educationally Speaking, host Kimberly Ewing talks with high school students who are winners in the Nevada County Reads Countywide Writing Contest, along with high school librarian Josie Andrews and local writer Kirsten Casey. Both were instrumental in the success of this year's high school writing contest. Thanks for supporting your independent community radio station. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a great evening and meet me right here for tomorrow's edition of the KVMR Evening News. Thank you.